Hi everyone, welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Yusuf. And I'm Anna Moyer. Awesome. And today we are joined here uh, with our guest, Katrina Mavic, who's doing her PhD in philosophy, the same field that I'm studying. Uh, we're happy to have you here, Katrina. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So, Katrina, tell us more about how you got interested in philosophy, uh, a, bit, a, bit, a bit about your background. Yeah, so my background is actually in science. Uh, I did my undergrad um, back in Manitoba, and I did that in science through psychology and focusing primarily on neuroscience because there wasn't a neuroscience program uh, at the university I was doing or I was doing my undergrad in. Uh, And then I did my master's in science and neuroscience here at Western. And basically I sort of occurred to me that the question or the research question that was sort of guiding my research, um, my empirical research was more conceptual in nature. And I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that. And so based on that realization, it sort of occurred to me that moving into philosophy might give me the opportunity to look more in depth into the conceptual nature of what I was studying. And it might also give me the flexibility to include some um, continuation of my empirical work. So essentially what I'm sort of working on uh, is looking at primarily um, the the neurobiological or the neurophysiological underpinnings um, of depression specifically um, and sort of understand or further understanding what depression as we know it is. And the the main sort of guiding thesis or guiding framework that I had since the beginning of my master's and that I'm continuing currently my PhD is that what we currently conceptualize of or know of as depression is in actuality a myriad of different though related disorders with different um, underlying mechanisms. Interesting. And do you think you could tell us a bit more about what the distinctions between these different mechanisms might be? It's a really difficult question to answer. (laughs) Um, And sort of what I'm looking at a little bit. Uh, If you sort of look into the literature uh, in humans, as well as in rodent models, or even other animal models of of depression or mood disorders, um, or even anxiety, it's it's not the cleanest <laughs> um, uh, area of research, for sure. And, and I think it's just because conceptual clarity is sort of a challenge. But one thing that I could sort of, one thing that I'm sort of uh, thinking about more recently is the idea that there's so many different systems in the body and even outside of the body, um, whether that be social or um or ecological and things like that, that influence our behaviors and even how our bodies function and how our bodies work. So for instance, uh, a lot of people normally focus on just the brain itself when we're thinking about mental disorders. 
And even when you're looking at the diagnostic manual, the DSM, for instance, um, a lot of those symptoms are very neurocentric or cognitive centric, uh, and they don't necessarily, um, I guess, make reference to things outside of the body, per, for instance, um, or so to speak, rather. So based on that, it sort of has occurred to me that with the research that I've done currently, um, there's more than just things in the brain that are impacted, which makes a lot of sense because the brain is connected to the body, right? And it, it's not, it doesn't operate in a silo. Um, and neurotransmitters are more than just neurotransmitters. So for instance, serotonin, um, which is sort of the rock star for depression, um, which is sort of a myth, but, um, but as an example, serotonin is 90% of it is found outside of the brain. So obviously sort of how we discuss these things and how we discuss the, the etiology or the underlying mechanisms of depression um, and other mental disorders, I would assume as well, uh, are sort of just um, not broad enough, I don't think. Um, I, yeah. I, I guess I was wondering, so, I mean, philosophy is fantastic for conceptual investigations, and this seems like a, a murky area requiring just such, such a pursuit. Um, what else motivated you to maybe look at mental health issues uh, to put all your energy in this particular area? Um, were, were there uh, some other interests that you wanted to learn more about? Yeah, I've always been incredibly passionate about the brain and mental health ever since I was, I was young. Um, I think that primarily stemmed from the fact that I was severely bullied all throughout elementary school and then sort of trying to uh, grow from that uh, during high school and junior high and things like that. Um, it sort of just made me realize, or, or I guess it built this, this passion in me for, for mental health and for understanding where other people are coming from. Um, and also personally speaking, uh, it's obviously an academic uh, interest of mine, but it's also a personal interest of mine as well. Um, so my, my sort of doctoral research and my, my research that I've done in neuroscience for my undergrad and my master's, they, they're genuinely driven by this sort of fascination with the brain and with mental health and with these really complex um, human experiences and trying to figure them out. But it's also driven by my own personal passion and my own personal commitment to doing what I can to better understand my own self and other people. Uh, and especially if we understand these things better, one of the things that I hope will happen is that my work and others in the area will sort of lead to a destigmatization of mental illness as a whole. Um, so they're all very 
my, my academic and my personal interests um, in this topic are, are very much intertwined. And so, you know, you mentioned that there was kind of personal reasons why you maybe experienced depression yourself. Um, and I know that we did some research back in the 70s on the Rat Park model, where we found that community was one of the things that best um, got people out of addiction. So I was wondering if you'd done any research with regard to mental illness and especially depression in community building. So community building and like the social aspect are not really things that I look at the most. Um, being part of the translational cognitive, um, sorry, yeah, translational cognitive neuroscience lab uh, here at Western. Um, it, it's mainly focused on cognitive neuroscience and behavioral neuroscience. Um, however, I do know that socialization is incredibly important. Um, that's just not necessarily something that I've focused on myself as much. Um, though it would be really interesting to see what, what that would look like <laughs> in a in a rodent model, for instance. In the um, description you sent us, you, you mentioned a term that I wasn't familiar with. I believe it's called uh, neuro, neurogenesis and how it's related to mood. Could you speak uh, a little about that as well? Yeah, so that's one of the main, I guess, mechanisms that I am looking at. Um, and neurogenesis is essentially the generation of new neurons in the brain. And the it's also one type of neuroplasticity. And that's sort of been the overarching theme of all of my neuroscientific research ever since undergrad. Um, so I guess in my master's, I just sort of settled into one type of neuroplasticity and um, sort of married that with my interest in mental health and abnormal psychology. So essentially what, what my master's was focusing on was how adult neurogenesis in particular, and specifically adult neurogenesis in one area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is traditionally known to be the, the house for memory and learning. Though it's obviously plays a much large, larger role than just those things. Um, but how adult hippocampal neurogenesis plays a role in emotion regulation um, and focusing on the depression relevant um, behaviors. Interesting. And I also noticed that you had done some study on neuroplasticity and uh, specifically experience dependent plasticity. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So in my undergrad, I basically spent four years doing research um, in the summers and then the one year, the one full year doing my research project for my honors degree, um, my honors, honors thesis rather. Um, and in that lab, my supervisor, Dr. Tammy Ivanko was focusing a lot on neuroplasticity and learning. So experience dependent plasticity is essentially how the brain changes with experience. Um, and that's sort of what I'm continuing to look at uh, currently in, in my focus on neurogenesis and, and mood, for instance. But um, back in my undergrad, I was using a lot of different tools to look at this experience-dependent plasticity and how the brain changed with experience. So I remember there was 
one year I was using an autism uh, rap model uh, to look at how exercise and social defeat, which is the loose um, and the, the loose model um, for bullying in rodents and how exercise might help or, uh, yeah, I guess help resilience towards bullying in, in autism rat models. I didn't find much of anything, which was unfortunate, but <laughs> that's one example of what, what we were using. And um, I also used Fragile X mouse models and, and things like that to look at um, different types of receptors in the cerebellum. Um, for my honors thesis itself, I looked at early exposure to a certain type of chemical, which was actually used as a fire retardant. And it was found that it, it's widely used in, in household furnitures and things. And there was sort of the idea that it might cause motor deficits or cognitive deficits um, after early exposure. And obviously with toddlers and children, they're on the floor a lot. They're putting things in their mouths all the time. So wouldn't necessarily be far-fetched that that early exposure to this toxin would happen just because of that by virtue of how toddlers function, right? Um, and so it, what I was looking at was like, it's not necessarily that I was a fire retardant or chemical researcher, and it wasn't that I was looking at motor behavior specifically, but I was looking at what that toxin did and how early exposure of that toxin changed the brain in some way in order to alter behavior on the tasks that I was looking at. So the, the running theme of the lab and of my projects was that even though I was using an autism model, for instance, I wasn't an autism researcher. I was researching experience-dependent plasticity. So how that experience changed the brain and how we can then change it in another way with different types of manipulations and um, interventions. Wow. Well, um, well, um, I want to switch gears a little bit, bit as well. So I, I know Katrina, um, you got some training in suicide prevention as well on campus. Uh, we spoke about this before as well. Could you tell us why you thought that was important and what you've learned in that journey that you took? Yeah, I think that's more related to my own commitment to spreading awareness and, and I guess the more activism side of my interests, I guess if you, you can call it that. Um, and also my own personal development to um, especially in grad school since mental illness is so common in graduate students, um, it was always important for me to learn as much as I could about the supports that are available and how best I can support myself and support others um, and support my friends um, as well who might be going through a hard time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, so you joined uh, some a committee at SOGS as well, uh, GPS, Graduate Peer Support, or is that correct? Yeah. Can you tell us more about uh, that committee and why you joined that committee out of the 14, 15 committees we have at Society of Graduate Students? Yeah, so I actually didn't know that GPS or Graduate Peer Support was 
was a committee. I didn't know that it existed until a few or I guess a couple of years ago um, when my friend who was the chair at the time told me about it and asked me to join. So I guess I just randomly joined it and have been an active member ever since. So it's been about a year and a half now, I guess, since I've been involved. And um, I guess my my involvement in that or or my decision to to be involved in GPS as much as how I got involved in in the committee specifically at Western is sort of a weird, random, idiosyncratic thing. Um, in my life narrative, I suppose it's not as strange. Um, throughout high school, I was part of my peer support team and I actually was the co-chair of the peer support team um, uh, in my grade 12 year. So it's always been something that was important to me. And I've always been a very strong proponent of peer support. Um, and essentially what GPS does is there's a few programs that we offer, including a food bank. So students, graduate students can apply for the food bank to get money um, for groceries and things like that. If uh, after they show in the application form that, that there's a need for that. Um, but my, my main interests uh, in the committee are more related to the peer support part of it, as well as the awareness events that we that we hold. That is wonderful. And what are some of the upcoming events that you're going to be part of, maybe? So the one that's coming up um, at the time of recording <laughs> uh, is um, a the second session or session second installment of the shared experiences conversation series that we started uh, over the summer. And the second session is a collaboration with GradCast, actually. Um, I had done a special episode for World Suicide Prevention Day, which is September 10th. And so we're, we decided to do a shared experiences conversation series session um, to sort of couple or piggyback off of that episode so that we can discuss the issue further. And essentially what the Straight Experiences series is supposed to be is supposed to raise awareness and education with a short sort of um, educational or informational presentation at the beginning if needed. And then those who are present can share their own experiences or ask any type of question that they have or just listen in to other people sharing their experiences and the answers that are provided in a very safe, non-judgmental space, because these types of conversations are important for the destigmatization, for instance. And wow, Katrina, so what have you enjoyed the most in, in being a member for year and a half graduate peer support? Probably my, um, Sorry, trying to find words. <laughs> um, I, I guess my my favorite part would would be just the fact that I'm able to work with a team of people who are also committed towards helping raise awareness and support um, fellow graduate students, and and for me that extends to 
to the broader community of, of people <laughs> um, as humans, and that might not be the case for everybody on the committee. So I can't really make that generalization. But for me, it's definitely an important part that I'm able to play a role in, in a committee that is um, that does so much for spreading this awareness and, and educating people about um, important issues surrounding wellness uh, in general. It's not necessarily restricted to mental health, but yeah. Fantastic. And do you think that you'll be able to kind of intersect maybe some of your advocacy work with your research um, either now or in the future? I would hope to. That's definitely one of the goals. Um, whenever I think about what, what I want to contribute, um, obviously there's the the, um, the desire to contribute to the knowledge base, but especially when the research I'm doing is focused so much on clarifying our conceptualization of depression, for instance, or focus so much on further elucidating different potential ideological mechanisms. A lot of that research hopefully will play a role in further iterations of the DSM, for instance, or di diagnostic manuals um, and, and things like that. And also how people with the diagnosis sort of perceive themselves and how they understand themselves and their illness um, and how they approach treatment uh, possibilities. And maybe even my research might help in um, maybe uh, positing different ideas for what types of treatments might be best for different symptom profiles, for instance. Because um, if each, if it is true that depression as we know it is not a single disorder, but it's actually a bunch of different disorders with different underlying mechanisms, it would make sense that certain treatments would work better for certain symptom profiles because they would have different underlying mechanisms. Um, so I guess that's my, my overall hope, though that seems a bit broad and big picture and perhaps a little bit of a pipe dream at the moment, but. <laughs> yeah, um, in your um, email that you sent us, you mentioned about your activism and I, that one line really caught my attention. You said, everyone deserves to be treated kindly especially when it comes to the context of gender issues and queer issues uh, and intersectionality in, in general. Could you tell us more about intersectionality and why that's important to... Um... Yeah, so I guess my, my research interests for my, doc for my doctorate are restricted primarily to mental health and mental illness and depression um, specifically, but my own personal research interests and my own um, personal activism, I guess uh, we can call that, <laughs> um, also extends to queer and gender issues. Those are also, um, that's also an area that's incredibly important to me, both academically and personally. So when I refer to, when I started learning about intersectionality in my classes, it just seemed to, 
it just seemed to make a lot of sense to me that everybody has different experiences and there's different traits that people have that sort of shape that experience. And especially with working with looking at depression and how someone with the same diagnosis of depression can have a completely different and perhaps even a completely opposite symptom profile as someone else with the same diagnosis. It just, for some people that might seem, or I guess on the surface, it seems mind boggling or baffling that these two completely different symptom profiles can have the same diagnosis. But then when you look a little bit deeper and think about these things are complex and people are complex and we're not unidimensional. And there's so many things that play into our behaviors and our symptoms and how we actually cope with what happens with us, what happens to us, um, especially at a younger age and how that builds um, how we behave later on in life. All of those things are impacted by all these other experiences that we have based on other traits that we have, whether it be race, whether it be sexuality, whether it be gender, whether it be symptom management, <laughs> uh, things like that. And I think there's one thing I, I believe, oh, I really wish I could remember the person's name, but <laughs> years ago, I remember listening to a TED talk. I believe it was by a person named Ash, which does not help anything, but <laughs> um, the TED talk, essentially, the one thing that the speaker was saying um, was that hard is hard. Mm. And I think they're also talking about like the coming out experience. So they're primarily talking about being a woman who dresses androgynously and having to answer the question, are you a boy or a girl? That sort of context, that's what they were talking about. Um, but they also were discussing coming out in terms of coming out with mental health, with a diagnosis. Like every time you tell somebody that you have cancer, it's a coming out experience. And that stuck with me as well as the hard is hard motto where breaking a nail, for instance, might be devastating to someone at one time. And you might look at that and think that that's superficial or vapid um, based on your own experiences, but that doesn't take away the pain of that one person who might be having a breakdown because they broke their nail, let's say, right? So that's always something that I have now continued to go back to and sort of hard is hard mentality and motto. And I think that drives a lot of how I approach my, my more activist um, interests as well as my research interests. Um, sort of this mentality that even though I might find somebody's issues or current situation or for instance, like boy, tro boy troubles, let's say, or like relationship issues, even though I might look at that and say like, oh, that might, that's not even something that's very difficult. Like it, it's a breakup, get over it. It doesn't take away the fact that can be very painful for that one person, um, for that other person. And that's something I struggle with, but that's something that I definitely um, stand by. And I think that that does also relate to intersectionality in the sense that 
everybody's experiences are built from so many different components of themselves. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's such a wonderful place to maybe end this on that we should respect every, every person's unique individual experience and, and their pain as such. Um, and also on the topic of perhaps queer activism, we will be doing our third and final GradCast episode with Katrina on asexuality, and that will be coming out during Asexual Awareness Week. And Kat, do you want to maybe say a couple words on that? Yeah, um, I think that it will be an incredibly eye-opening um, interview, and I'm really looking forward to it. Asexuality is something that is so vastly misunderstood, even by people within the community that itself. Um, and I think that our discussion will prove valuable to people who perhaps aren't asexual even, um, or people who aren't queer, uh, because there's a lot of rhetoric and, and misunderstandings that, that um, play a role in the, the discussion around asexuality that I think is misunderstood um, in, in general, in the general public as well. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming to the interview today. Uh, could you maybe give us a social media or website that we could contact you at? Yeah, my social media is not the most active, but if you wanted to learn more about my research, um, I welcome anybody who's interested to look at my profiles on the Rotman website um, or my profile on the TCN Lab website, which is tcnlab.ca. Just look under team and you'll find you'll find my profile there. Well, Katrina, thank you so much. What an interest. It was so fascinating to see your research interests, your activism, your social involvement in our community at Western uh, and how they're all interconnected. And um, that was amazing. So thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. <clears throat> and I honestly think uh, we'll be seeing more of you besides podcast as well. I think the commissioners and Anna is one of them uh, and GPS can do some collaborative work together with on mental health awareness, especially when it comes to inter intersectionality as well. So uh, we'll see more of you <laughs> and you'll see more of us maybe. Uh, yeah. So um, with, with that, the, this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Yusuf, and my co-host was Anna. We've been speaking with Katrina, and this episode was produced by me as well. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on the radio at Western Radio, 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful night or day. Bye.